15, 24, 1866 very nearly a year after the first naval action off the river port of Corrientes. At this battle of Tuyuti the Paraguayans lost no fewer than 8.000 men, and the casualties of the Allies amounted to an equal number. Another important action was fought at Curapati two months later, when the progress of the Allies was abruptly checked, and they were compelled to retire to some distance with a loss of 9.000 men. This was only one of a fair number of Paraguayan victories, for the defenders, although in the main they preserved an attitude of strenuous resistance were occasionally enabled to exchange this for active aggression. The history of this war, which lasted for four years, is one of the most remarkable in the whole category of struggles of the kind, undoubtedly one of the most extraordinary features to be met with is the tremendous courage and grim determination with which the Paraguayans opposed the forces of the Allies. Every yard of the country was contested with a fierceness which left the entire countryside covered with dead and wounded, when, moreover, the modern arms in the possession of which the Paraguayan armies had commenced the war had become lost and depleted in numbers. Their place was taken by improvised weapons of all kinds, and it was frequently with the crudest firearms and lances that these devoted armies continued to fight. The encouragement these troops received from their leaders or, rather, from Lopez was in one sense of a negative order. Rewards for valor were unknown, but punishments for defaults, on the other hand, whether real or imaginary were abundant and terribly severe. Men were shot for having in the course of private conversation uttered words which the suspicious mind of Lopez classed as discouraging. Thus a trooper was on one occasion executed for having ventured the remark that, although the Paraguayans rejoiced over the numbers of their enemies who were slain, they invariably forgot to count their own dead. A second soldier met with a similar fate for having, on his return from a reconnaissance, stated that the enemy lay in great strength to the front. Lopez conceived that a report such as this could serve no good end, and ordered its maker to be executed forthwith. It is curious to remark that even with the astonishing proofs of their bravery and devotion which the army had shown, Lopez could never bring himself to repose any real confidence in his troops. The tasks which were set them were frequently superhuman. Indeed, as a rule they received the treatment of beasts rather than of men and in order to ensure the winning of his battles Lopez encouraged his officers to treat their men in a fiendish manner. Thus, when a body of men had been placed face to face with an infinitely superior force of the enemy, and were being mowed down in hundreds by deadly volleys at close range, a line of Paraguayans were frequently stationed at the rear of their own fighting forces, with the strictest orders to pour a volley into their comrades should they show any signs of retreat. In circumstances such as these it is not to be wondered at that the ranks of the sublime Lopez dwindled and became thin to the point of extermination, nevertheless, the gaps were caused by death and disease rather than by desertion. One of the most pathetic circumstances of the campaign was the deep fidelity of the Paraguayans. This was as a rule sufficiently ill-requited, as will be evident from the fate of a number of troops who, having been made prisoners by the Allies, succeeded after a time in escaping and in rejoining their suffering and starving comrades. In order to keep faith in this manner they had left a neighborhood of peace and comparative plenty. But Lopez gave them no thanks. On the contrary, he ordered them to be executed for not having returned to their regiments before. Towards the end of the war scarcely a man of mature age and whole body was left in the ranks. These were filled largely now by youths and, indeed, mere boys. Many children of 12 and 14 were to be found in the later stages of the war carrying their rifles and fighting with the rest, while the women of the country, 
including in their numbers all those of good estate and of gentle birth were, under the guardianship of Lancers, set to march through the desolate forest tracts and over the countryside in order to establish new agricultural colonies. Here they were made to dig the soil and to plant cereals and sweet potatoes in order that the armies might be fed, and should any one of these women on the march fall by the wayside, her body was transfixed by the spear of one of the escort as an example to the rest. Thus the roadway was littered with the corpses of these slain women. All this while Lopez was sufficiently busy in his own way. His dreams of empire appear to have died hard, and not until the very end came could he be brought to believe that his armies could effect no more. He permitted his own comforts to be very little affected by the dire hardships which his troops and, indeed, the entire nation were undergoing, although he refrained as much as possible from entering into the neighborhood of the battles themselves. He took an important share in the direction of the campaign, and it was undoubtedly owing largely to his crass ineptitude in all strategical matters that many of the disasters came about. Although some of his moves were of the nature to render surrender or death inevitable to the actual combatants engaged in the grim struggle, a capitulation on the part of one of his officers was, in the eyes of Lopez, an unpardonable crime, and not only was the offending officer himself wont to be executed on account of the deed, but on several occasions his family was made to share his fate, seeing that the male members and connections of his own family had suffered tortures and execution at his hands, and that even his sisters had been flogged by his orders. It was not to be expected that the average Paraguayan would meet with mercy from Lopez. Certainly it is no exaggeration to say that none was ever shown unless with some special object in view. There is no doubt that a Paraguayan field officer had, if anything, rather more to dread from his own dictator than from his official enemy. The end of the war, and duly protracted, came at last. The capital, Asuncion, had fallen into the hands of the Allies, and Lopez, failing any other refuge, had taken his place with the last remaining body of the defenders a ragged and tragic army, many of whom were practically nude, and very few of whom could boast anything beyond the remnants of a shirt or a hide loincloth. Others flaunted a crude poncho or a leather cap, while many possessed no weapons but an old flintlock rifle or a war lance. Although nominally an army of a thousand and odd men composed this last hope, they were little more than fugitives. Nevertheless, these last atoms of the once great Paraguayan host turned and resisted grimly each time the pursuing forces came within reach of them and delivered in attack. Illustration, Thomas Cochran, 10th Earl of D.U.N.D.O.N.A.L.D., G.C.B who reorganized the Killian and Peruvian navies and destroyed Spanish naval power in the Pacific, Irishkites. At last the few remnants of even this remnant found themselves at a spot Cora, in the forests of Paraguay where they were overtaken and brought to bay. There, in the face of an attack on the part of overwhelmingly superior Brazilian forces, the little party finally lost its grim determination and broke up, leaving Lopez, Madame Lynch, and their family to shift for themselves. Madame Lynch escaped for the time being in a carriage. She had not, however, traveled far before her pursuers came up with her, and she was eventually brought back to Asuncion. Lopez, attempting to follow her from the battlefield on horseback, became bogged in the midst of some treacherous country. Here he was overtaken and, showing resistance, was slain by the pursuing Brazilians. With his death ended the first and last reason for the invasion of Paraguay. The condition of Paraguay at the conclusion of the war was utterly deplorable. Indeed, the state of the country was one which very few lands have experienced since the beginning of history. The natural resources of Paraguay lay in agriculture, 
since all the men had been engaged in fighting, and merely a few itinerant bands of weak women had been employed in this occupation in the meanwhile. The cessation of hostilities disclosed the fact that agriculture was to all practical purposes no more. One of the few really wise moves which Lopez had made during the war was the wholesale planting of orange trees, the growth of which was wont to flourish to an extraordinary degree in Paraguayan soil. The numerous new groves now proved, to a certain extent, the salvation of the population, and the fruit was eagerly devoured. For the time being there was little else upon which the unfortunate people could live. It is true that there were fewer mounts to feed, since the population of the land at the close of the war was insignificant compared to that which the country had supported at its beginning. Thus, in 1863, the people of Paraguay had been estimated roughly as numbering 1.340.000 souls. When peace was declared there were less than a quarter of a million Paraguayans left to enjoy its benefits, and of these only 28.000 were men. A holocaust such as this would scarcely seem to come within the range of sane and modern history, when it is realized that, roughly, only one Paraguayan out of five was left of the entire population at the end of the five years' war. The extent of the deep horrors of that period may begin to be understood, although its full tragedy can scarcely be imagined by the dwellers in more settled and peaceful countries. It was the women of Paraguay who, having been driven at the point of the lance to a labor in the fields in order to feed the army, now came forward of their own free will in the time of peace and utter need, and heroically set themselves to agricultural toil. After a while the rich soil of the republic yielded sufficient harvest to satisfy the attenuated population of the land, but it was many years ere anything approaching a normal state of affairs was able to assert itself. The war, indeed, had caused every nation involved a heavy amount of blood and treasure. In some respects it is said to have served a full purpose. The Argentines, for instance, claim that this struggle intensified the national spirit of the republic since it was the first modern war on a large scale in which the South American states had been concerned. It seems likely enough that there is some justification for this claim. The result was, perhaps, evident in a rather lesser degree in the case of both Brazil and Uruguay. The political effect of the campaign upon Paraguay was, of course, still more important. The Allies had announced that they were fighting, not against the Republic, but against the personality of its despot, Lopez. His death marked the end of the despotic era, and, although Paraguay has suffered greatly from revolutions from that day to this, there has been no attempt at a repetition of the reign of terror. Chapter XXVI The Republic of Chile. It has already been said how, at the conclusion of the War of Liberation in Chile, Bernardo Higgins found himself at the head of the state. The first president was in every respect admirably fitted for his office. The post, moreover, was nothing beyond his deserts, since he, more than the majority of the other patriots, had suffered for the cause. The youth of Bernardo O'Higgins was far more checkered than that which falls to the lot of most young men, owing to the peculiar circumstances of his birth his father, as a high official under the Spanish rule, had not dared perform the marriage ceremony with his colonial lady love. Bernardo's mother his childhood had been somewhat neglected, and his early youth largely deprived of a normal share of paternal affection. His father, nevertheless, had seen to it that the boy's education should be of a liberal order. Bernardo O'Higgins had been one of the South Americans who, during the last days of the Spanish Dominion, had been sent to study in Europe. There he came into contact with Miranda, who appears to have been almost ubiquitous at this period, and whose terrific energy seemed to have absorbed all those with whom he came into contact. 
In any case, it is certain that Bernardo O'Higgins rapidly became a devoted adherent of Miranda, and joined with enthusiasm the society that Miranda had formed for the liberation of South America, indeed, he was admitted into this before Simon Bolivar had joined it. On his way back to South America he endured various rebuffs at the hands of the court of Spain. Possibly he was made to suffer vicariously on his father's account, since undoubtedly there were times when the latter's policy was strongly resented by the Spanish officials. If Ireland on the other hand, quite possible that some suspicions of Bernardo's single quote Higgins single quote as notions of independence had filtered through to Madrid. It was owing to complications of this kind that coolness ensued between him and his father, the famous Ambrose O'Higgins. On the latter's death Bernardo applied for his rights of succession to his father's titles. These were abruptly refused him. Thus, when he entered into public life in Chile it was in a comparatively humble capacity, serving as he did as Alcalde of Chillon. From this it will be seen that Bernardo O'Higgins had not only achieved much, but had suffered much in his own person. During the War of Liberation the capacities of Bernardo O'Higgins were almost ceaselessly tried, and it must be said that they were never found wanting. The triumph of the Patriot cause and the foundation of the new Republic of Chile entailed for him no period of repose. On the contrary, he now felt himself loaded with an infinitely greater weight of cares and responsibilities. His post as President of Chile was no sinecure. He had not only to attend to the organization of the new state, but also to employ to the utmost his judgment, tact, and diplomacy, with which qualities he was so well endowed. In allaying the disputes and jealousies between the patriot leaders, there is no doubt, for instance, that but for the calming influence of O'Higgins the breach between San Martin and Cochrane would have been attended with more violent results than was the case. It was the work of a veteran in statecraft to deal alone with the machinations of the brothers Carrera, those irresponsible firebrands who, although ostensibly enthusiastic in the Pillian cause, were in reality fighting for nothing beyond their own hand and hastened to sacrifice any cause or person to their own interests. There were times, moreover, when it was necessary to suppress actual attempts at revolution, while, as though this were not sufficient, external difficulties tended to render the situation still more complicated. Diplomatic incidents occurred with Great Britain and the United States. These arose owing to the seizure of British and American ships by the fleet of the New Republic. These captures, as a matter of fact, were perfectly justified since the vessels in question were laden with stores and war material destined for the Spanish forces. Nevertheless, the authorities of Great Britain and the United States, although their sympathies from the very beginning of the struggle had lain so openly with the revolutionists, found it difficult to reconcile themselves to the capture of their vessels by a power concerning the permanence of which they were not completely satisfied. No sooner were these matters settled than there broke out serious manifestations of discontent on the part of the citizens of the young state, the cause which actually brought matters to a head, and which was responsible for the revolution which drove O'Higgins from power, was of a reactionary nature, with a considerable section of the Killians neither O'Higgins nor the Republic was popular, both, in fact, at this period were considered an evil second only to the detested Spanish rule. The majority of the ladies of the aristocratic classes worked strenuously against O'Higgins, and in the end revolutions burst out in Concepcion and in Coquimbo, and eventually rioting occurred in Santiago itself. O'Higgins met the situation with a characteristic calm and intrepidity. Visiting the barracks, his presence had the almost immediate effect of restoring to him the allegiance of the military, after which, 
invited to attend a meeting of the dissatisfied party. He hastened to the spot. Here a spokesman of the malcontents demanded in plain words that he should tender his resignation. O'Higgins, in his reply, first of all made it perfectly clear that he was in no mood to be terrorized by force or superior numbers. This latter advantage, indeed, he asserted that the gathering, however great its influence, could not claim as regards the sections it represented. After discussion, however, seeing that his own motives were purely disinterested, he consented to yield to the wishes of the meeting. A junta of three of the organizers of this latter was appointed, and O'Higgins initiated these into their new office, receiving from them their oath of allegiance to the constitutions of the new republic. He then tore off his own insignia and declared himself a private citizen. The scene which followed has been admirably translated by Mr. Scott Elliott, and his words may well be reproduced here. O'Higgins had turned to face the meeting, and addressed it in the following words, Now I am a simple citizen, during my government, that I have exercised with full authority, I may have committed mistakes, but believe me when I say that they were due to the very difficult circumstances when I took up my charge, and not to evil passions, I am ready to answer any accusations which are made against me, if these faults have caused evils which can only be purged by my blood, take what revenge you will upon me. Here is my breast. The people cried out, We have nothing against you. The Rodriguez, I know well, he added, that you cannot justly accuse me of intentional faults. Nevertheless, this testimony alleviates the weight of those which I may have unknowingly committed. Turning to the Hunt, he added, My presence has ceased to be necessary here. It was in this noble and dignified manner that the great hero of Killian independence retired into private life. It was, perhaps, the most glorious action of his career, he could certainly have plunged Chile in a civil war, and perhaps retained the power, after this Chile underwent a period of that unrest from which no single one of the independent states of South America succeeded in escaping, in Chile, nevertheless, although civil war occurred, and much blood was spilled, the anarchy and chaos were a far shorter duration than elsewhere, doubtless the barrier of the Andes, which had shut off the country to such a large extent from the rest of the world, had added not a little to the tranquility and self-reliance of the Killian character, determined as this has always shown itself. In any case, such revolutions as occurred failed to exercise the same baneful influence on Killian affairs as was the case with almost every other state at that period. The condition of the Republic, although far from tranquil, might be considered as peaceful when compared with that of its neighbors, in financial matters. Moreover, the Republic made astonishing progress paying the interest on the loans raised abroad with a praiseworthy regularity, and thus maintaining her financial credit unimpaired. The short war which occurred between Spain and the allied forces of Peru and Chile has already been referred to. Officially, the four republics of Peru, Chile, Ecuador, and Bolivia were leagued together into an alliance to resist this aggression on the part of Spain, owing to their lack of warships. However, the two latter states were unable to take any active share in the operations. On the whole the part played by the Pillian Navy was entirely satisfactory, nevertheless, the naval force of the young republic was not sufficient to drive the aggressor's vessels from the coast, and Valparaiso was bombarded on March 31, 1866. This misfortune, like so many others, eventually proved itself something of a blessing in disguise, for from that time may be said to date the modern Pillian Navy determined to allow no foreign nation the opportunity of bombarding any of its ports with impunity again. 
the Kilians energetically betook themselves to the forming of efficient national squadrons a feat which was simple enough in the case of a nation of born sailors as are the Kilians. From that day onwards the Kilian Navy maintained its status, and continues to rank as one of the most efficient in the world. This was proved shortly after its reorganization in the war which broke out in 1879 between the Kilians and the allied Peruvians and Bolivians. Hostilities were brought about by the vexed question of the ownership of the valuable nitrate provinces. These, Child claimed, constituted the northernmost of her territory, to which Peru retorted that they formed the southernmost portion of her land. The naval engagements which ensued demonstrated to the utmost the high spirit of the Killian sailor and the efficiency of the school in which he had been trained. The action in which the two small Killian vessels, the Esmeralda and the Covadonga, fought so heroically against the Peruvian ironclads, Huascar and Independencia, was, of course, the most famous of the war, and the memory of this is jealously guarded by the Killian Navy of today. No question of victory on the part of Chile was ever involved in this particular action, since the miniature guns of the small Killian vessels could, under no circumstances, take effect on the Peruvians. Giants by comparison, it was merely a sublime demonstration of the extent to which Killian resistance could be carried. Thus the Esmeralda, refusing to surrender to the very last, went down after a prolonged and desperate engagement with her colors flying, while the tiny Covadonga, having lured one of her opponents into shallow water, and thus caused the Independencia to run aground, blazed away her final volleys of small shot, and retired with all the honors of war. Inspired by examples such as these, the Killian Navy maintained its traditions to the full, and although the Peruvian sailors fought gallantly enough, they could make no headway against their opponents. On shore the fortune of war was similar, and the highly disciplined Killian army, advancing to the north, occupied until Fagasta, Cobija, and Tocopia, but the tide of battle was not arrested at this point, it flowed to the north again, and the deserts in that neighborhood witnessed a number of engagements, in all of which the Peruvians and Bolivians were worsted and forced to continue their retreat, the important town of Arica was captured on June 7th after a peculiarly sanguinary engagement, Port Pico was the next to fall, and now Lima itself, the capital of Peru, was threatened, so resolute was the Killian advance that no efforts of the defenders could succeed in preserving the city, and on January 7, 1881, Lima fell into the hands of the Killians. After this the war was continued in a desultory and discouraged fashion by the Allies until at the end of 1883 peace was signed, and, as has been explained in a previous chapter, Bolivia lost her coastline, while the Killians took over the definite ownership of the provinces of Antofagasta and Tarapaca. This latter country gained, moreover, the right of dominion over the neighboring provinces of Tacna and Arica for ten years, after which period the inhabitants of these two provinces were to decide by vote whether they should remain Killian subjects or become Peruvians. This portion of the treaty has formed the basis of a series of disputes between Chile and Peru, but the provinces in question have continued Killian. In 1891 the internal peace of Chile was shattered for a while since in that year occurred the only civil war in the modern history of the Republic. The struggle succeeded in air of some political confusion, and Palmasida, who was president of the Republic at the time, went the length of proclaiming himself dictator, a step which his opponents and, indeed, the nation in general refused to sanction. Palmasida's party, however, was powerful, and the war which succeeded was hotly contested. After various fluctuations, Palmasida's followers met with defeat and the president, 
yielding to the inevitable, blew out his brains. Following this last period of unrest, which the Pilians rightly maintain was both fleeting and exceptional, we come upon the quite modern history of the Republic, which shows that the Pilians, although admirably equipped for war, are now as anxious as any other country for peace and progress. This they have proved on more than one occasion, notably when the question of frontier delimitations brought about a dispute with Argentina, a dispute which both nations consented to refer to arbitration, and, an award having been given, both nations maintained it with equal loyalty. Chapter XXVI The Republics of the River Plate The history of no other republic immediately following on the period of the Wars of Liberation is quite so complicated as that of Argentina. The circumstances in the River Plate provinces differed somewhat from those of any other part of Spanish South America. From the outset Argentina loomed more largely in the eye of Europe than did any other of the sister states. No sooner were the ports thrown open by the newly constituted republics than the foreigners flocked to Argentine soil in numbers which were quite unknown elsewhere. The chief reasons, of course, for this influx were the temperate climate, the now acknowledged riches of the land, and the comparative ease with which access to the country was obtained. Owing to this latter circumstance, Argentina possessed a great advantage over Chile, notwithstanding the peculiarly fine climate of the latter republic for the journey over the Andes was strenuous and costly in the extreme, while the voyage from Europe to the Western Republic through the Straits of Magellan occupied exactly double the time required to reach Buenos Aires. These strangers, of course, introduced many progressive ideas and new habits and luxuries into the land. In non-political matters a cosmopolitan result was soon evident. At the same time, these foreigners failed to exercise any but the most indirect influence on the internal policy of the nation. This was undoubtedly perfectly correct, but in the face of the curious political situation which prevailed at this period we had the remarkable spectacle of rapid and definite progress in commercial, industrial, and private life, while at the same time the official methods of the public authorities were degenerating with a rapidity that soon brought the circumstances of government almost to a point of actual savagery. In the first instance, men of weight and intellect, such as Rivadavia, Puerregon, and their numerous colleagues, had strained every nerve to place this new nation of theirs on a par with those of Europe in matters of intelligence and scientific progress. They had open colleges, universities, hospitals, scientific institutions, libraries, and, indeed, had endeavored to provide the community with every instrument which could further its general progress. Every species of science was encouraged, even to the introduction of the then novel process of vaccination. It was all in vain, the move turned out to be premature. The Spanish policy of the suppression of education and intelligence was now destined to show its baneful results. A wave of ignorance and anarchy swept over the devoted leaders of the revolution, and overwhelmed them completely, and for the time being even their work. For half a century rival chieftains rose up one after the other to contend for power. Many of them employed every conceivable means, whether human or inhuman, to retain it when once they had succeeded in grasping the coveted dictator's throne. So numerous were these men, and so extensive is the catalogue of their callous doings, that it is impossible to refer to them in any other but the briefest fashion here. So extensive, moreover, was the new Republic of Argentina or, rather, at that time the collection of frequently antagonistic provinces which then occupied the area now filled by the modern Republic that a single ruler seldom succeeded in maintaining his authority from frontier to frontier, in general. The main strife may be said to have been waged between the provinces of the littoral and those of the far west. Of all the men who fought on either side, 
The greatest leader was, of course, Juan Manuel Roses. This astonishing being, as a matter of fact, was by no means one of the first of these tyrannical dictators. He was, on the contrary, the last, so far as Argentina is concerned, but his deeds continued to savor of an early period to the end, although at the time of his advent to power Roses was nearly one of a type, and found himself surrounded by a number of rival leaders. None proved himself a match for his extraordinary astuteness and influence over his neighbors. The dictator stood out head and shoulders above any other Argentine despot of his kind. Certainly far more has been written concerning Roses than concerning any other South American ruler of his period that is to say, so far as Spanish literature is concerned for. Although his rule attracted a very great deal of attention in England and elsewhere in Europe for as long as it lasted, the topic appears to have been allowed to slumber since his banishment and death. To revert, however, to the first period of the actual independence of Argentina, this was marked by almost continual warfare on the shores of the River Plate. Brazil, taking advantage of the confusion in the territories of her neighbors, had sent her armies to the south, and had occupied Uruguay, thus extending her frontiers to the long-coveted shores of the River Plate. This aggression was followed by war between Buenos Aires and Brazil, while a large section of the Uruguayans, headed by Artigas, whose name is famed as the great patriot of the Banda Oriental, by which name the Republic of Uruguay is still familiarly known, fought desperately against the Portuguese troops. Notwithstanding the very real perils which the situation held for the Spanish-speaking folk in these districts, it was not long before serious jealousies broke out between the leaders. In the end an open breach occurred between the Argentine army and a section of the Uruguayans. Artigas flung his devoted bands of soldiery alternately against the Brazilians and against the soldiers from Buenos Aires, and the more peaceful inhabitants of Uruguay watched with dismay the ad.